Coming up, a conversation with Christopher Mitchell, candidate for Colorado Springs mayor. This is 6035 Media. Casting an informed vote is your right and your duty as a citizen. I'm Brian Grossman, executive editor of 6035. And I'm Shelley Roars, spokesperson for the League of Women Voters of the Pikes Peak region. We're teaming up to bring you conversations with the candidates in the April 2023 Colorado Springs City election. So this interview is both an episode of the new 6035 Vote podcast. And the League's Making Democracy Work podcast. So let's get to it. So Christopher, why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself and why you're running for office? Okay, well, to give you a little bit bit of background, I've been here in Colorado Springs since 1998. Uh, moved here from Aurora. Um, started off in Aurora as an electrical engineer, and then I moved down here and have continued continued in the same career for the last 27 years. Um, I've been very active in community service, especially after the Waldo Canyon fire. I was involved with. Um, providing volunteer engineering services to to the residents of Mountain Shadows and also working with what was called Together Colorado Springs Together, which was a kind of a nonprofit volunteer function for helping residents with debris collection and just getting them back on their feet. Um, and that's where I've really had my beginnings in community service. And over the years, I've grown more and more um, – involved in the community of Colorado Springs. I want to preserve Colorado Springs in its fundamental sense of being a great place to live with respect to outdoor activities. But with our growth, we also have to balance that with our need for to make it welcoming to new people moving here. Great. Thank you. All right. Uh, Christopher, I'll get into some specific questions. Uh, first one is, where do you stand on the 128% water rule uh, and extending water and other utilities to flagpole annex developments? This is the water rule that city council just determined uh, within the past couple weeks. Okay, I, I um, did a little bit of research on that mm -hmm. topic uh, um, recently, mm -hmm. and I think it's very important that as we grow, we have to be take a, a conservationist standpoint on natural resources, and water is one of those. Mm -hmm. And as an engineer, I believe in critical planning or strategic planning as you endeavor into a project, which in this case, an annexation, you have to be basically making sure all your ducks are in a row. And this is just, once again, a great way of making sure that we are conserving water and that we're not building out so fast that we're overcoming our capacity mm -hmm. to provide the basic utilities. But water is something where re reservoirs and other facilities have to be constructed prior to annexations in order to reassure that we can have the, the fundamentals in place. And as an engineer, I find that it's important to have what I call uh, pre-planning for projects, and this is what I call a pre-planning type uh, modality mm -hmm. that is being introduced. And I'm speaking more in terms of engineering in this mm -hmm. case. Um, but I find that um, as we grow, it's just reassuring us that we wouldn't become a metro area such like for, say, Phoenix, Arizona, which mm -hmm. has grown, grown, and grown. And they're now saying, wow, we've grown so large that we're, are, we're, we're 
we don't have enough water to sustain what we have. And then also to maintain for the future uh, generations that we're going to have stability in the natural resources. And water is definitely one of those. But then also open space conservation is another one that I'm very big on. As we grow, we need to think about conserving the open space and, say, even the trees. Because if you really look at it, water retention Mm -hmm. in the landscape is really based upon vegetation and other factors that are, quote, Mm -hmm. anti-drought factors. And water aside, any opinion on how the city goes about annexing today? Uh, I'm a firm believer in that one one policy that I feel should be implemented as we grow is that um, we're annexing a lot of uh, going east. If we want to go east, Mm -hmm. developers should have impact fees imposed on on them. Mm -hmm. That if developers want to get be part of the process of growing the city. They need to have impact fees imposed on them, not only for infrastructure development, but for watershed development and the natural resources to which we just referred. Mm -hmm. Because that is part of what I feel is a responsibility for the developers. And moving forward, we need to be more of a community that we we want to grow, but the developers need to have – there needs to be an implication made that the developers need to participate in a monetary sense mm. in order to to have a part in that growth, not just breeze into town, say we want to build something, and then have CSU or another entity foot the bill for the growth. The mm. developers need to ante up. Okay. Thank you, Christopher. Shelley? Um, my question also about water. We um, spend a lot of water on what we call wastewater landscaping, 78%. Um, That's about the roughest estimate lately that whether it's the resort with a broken sprinkler system that just lets it go for a day or two um, or the uh, golf course down the street, right, that pretty – and I'm a realtor. I get curb appeal. But um, what I also don't get is my neighbor planting Kentucky bluegrass, um, either so, and and that's kind of the gamut of big business and even the small, little residential neighborhood kind of because um, we all waste water. How can we do better there? And then also, should the city consider extending water and other utilities to those subdivisions that are located outside the city that might not ever be annexed as part of being a regional water provider? Okay, um, first of all, I will address the one about the water conservation is. The, the situation I have seen many, many times, uh, especially I live over off of Garden of the Gods and 30th Street. So I can drive down the street in the early morning and there's sprinklers just shooting up uh, rockets of water. Right. out of the, And that goes on for weeks on end. Correct. And the property manager, managers, property owners need to be held accountable for that. They need to be brought into quicker turn times on getting the sprinklers fixed. I know that sounds a little bit you know, authoritarian, but it is something that we need to take into account. Um, my particular uh, residence, I have a large yard. It was a 1984 build, so the yard is a little bit larger than, say, on a newer build. And I have a just grass backyard. And so I'm very familiar with the challenges of, quote, one, keeping it up to uh, healthy during the summertime but also being a being a conservationist, how much how much is enough 
that your lawn isn't like so uh, always just like plush green in times of water conservation. There there has to be a balance that we can't just have a never ending for the, the tr- more traditional lawns and landscapes. Probably we need to regulate a little bit more on how much what what it actually constitutes green enough <laughs> or maintenance enough on those lawns because uh, especially with larger properties where the lawns are huge it just seems that we need to have a little bit more regulation on how much they're using and how much they're being charged for that so they are more participant and the um, with the newer builds yards are traditionally now becoming more uh, more zero escaped. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a good policy to, to drive toward smaller lawns that are, quote, needing maintained with water. Right. We I, live I on the same side of town, so I, I, I feel your pain with regards to those sprinklers just shooting in directions that are not even getting grass. Yes, so, they're watering. You know. they're, they're, they're giving mm-hmm. cars a car wash rather yep, than they sure watering are. The, <laughs> so, uh, the lawn. Right. And then with regard to what you were talking about, extending utilities to unannexed areas, I, this is somewhat of a delicate issue for me because I believe that CSU and its mission needs to focus on its a, a jurisdiction. And that jurisdiction is defined by where it's getting its funding from in terms of if you are part of the city, uh, uh, you're, you're, you're in the jurisdiction of providing funding to CSU, and, you know, either through taxes or some, uh, you know, a revenue. And CSU traditionally flies under a banner of kind of a nonprofit, but they still get their money. Um, they get money for the from the, its customers, but also taxes to keep the machine running. And so I think that extending it out to what I call the non-city jurisdictions or areas I don't want to get into a situation where the, the residents of Colorado Springs are footing the bill for non-participant funders. Okay. You know what? I, I guess that's the best way yes, I would sir. put it as an engineer. Okay. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, Christopher, how do you feel about accessory dwelling units being allowed in single-family residential areas? So when you're saying accessory, are you talking about, uh, say, Something that was not in the original intent of the master plan. Uh, yeah, AD, ADUs tend to be like the mother-in-law cottage, or but often used for okay. commercial reasons like Airbnbs. Uh, some use it for extended family, others use it to make more money. Um, but it would be essentially that accessory unit on okay. your personal property that you would be able to use how you wish. Um, yeah. Okay, so I think I will answer this from experience. I have mm-hmm. a a friend who has a large backyard and has decided to build another There you go. That would unit be yeah. mm-hmm. in their that would backyard. Be an ADU. Mm-hmm. And I would say that as long as there's an adherence to the code for that region mm-hmm. or that area mm-hmm. and also that they are a, and the building department is saying it's all within conformity. Right. I think that that person should have a right that if they have a property and they can leverage and economic benefit from that property, mm-hmm. um, I think they should be able to. Okay. I think there would be a limit, however, as to the extent of that in the reviewing process. Um, I don't know if this exists in the department planning department. I'd have to look it up mm-hmm. or even investigate it. But I would, I would feel that if that was becoming more and more common, 
that the planning department should adopt additional criteria which would go to say through the approval process Mm -hmm. in order so we don't want to get into what i call a de facto standard um, that if it became more and more common i would like to avoid de facto standards and and go for a a uh, an official standard within the the planning and approving process okay overall though you're in favor of allowing those um, I would say that as long as it, like I said, it's it's really a case by case looking at the zoning for the area, and I would say that as long as a person is willing to leverage their property mm. and for economic benefit, I would be in. You know, it, I kind of look at it as a a business proposition mm-hmm. as long as it's within the confines of the regulations for that area. Gotcha. Okay. Thanks, Shelley. Um, so also along the lines of housing, right? How do you, we've got a affordable housing issue and an affordable attainability, housing attainability issue. It's not just about, you know, it's even whether or not someone can attain, um, whether they can attain that dream, get there, whatever that looks like. How do you propose to address our affordable housing and affordable housing attainability crisis? Okay, um, it's a very good topic because it's at the forefront of Colorado Springs growth. It really is. It's the it's the main driver, is affordable housing. But I subscribe to a little bit different belief that you have to have stability in housing before you can have affordability. And I'll explain what I mean by that. And this is a very, I guess, personal view and not necessarily a a, an adopted political view, but it's just something I have convictions about, is that in order to have affordability, you have to have stability. And as our city is growing, we're growing in an, a very erratic way. There's a lot of things happening over there versus over here, like on this side of town versus the, the other side of town. And they're disjointed. And when I say stability, is to first look at the bigger picture of as things are moving through the planning department and the planning commission for recommendation to city council, we need to have a more comprehensive tying together of all these different growth aspects of the city for stability's sake. And then you can start kind of uh, bringing those together in terms of the different aspects of growth to a a stable process where it's all connected rather than disjointed. And then you can start working on what I call affordability because stability comes first in my mind. As an engineer, stability comes first and then you can start looking at stabilize your, your, your design, stabilize your project goals, and then you can start working on the budgetary, how it all fits together. So I take a little different view than just, I, I don't agree with the sense that we just build more things, product, housing products, okay. in order to address affordability. We have to look at a more comprehensive view, but we then, that comprehensive view is going to look at different income brackets and how we can best build the new products in the city limits for affordability. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Christopher, public safety. Uh, Colorado Springs Police Department is short uh, anywhere from 50 to 100 officers from its authorized strength. Um, 
the homicide rate last year was the highest it's been in the city. Traffic fatalities were the highest. What do we do about public safety in the police department? Okay, uh, for example, one thing that I've noticed with just police in general is that in order to, like, first of all, address recruitment goals mm-hmm. and shortfalls in, the, in that, that area, is we need to promote a positive image both internally and externally to the department. In, in other words, the officers that are serving need to know that they're appreciated and that they're serving a very vital function mm-hmm. to the community. And then also they need to have what I call occupational safety. I mean, we're starting to deal with fentanyl instances where police officers go into convulsions uh, because they're exposed to some drug element. And, then, and so we need to make sure that they have the right equipment for their occupational safety. Mm-hmm. And these are very basic tenets. And then one other thing that I would like to do is start addressing the recruitment process in terms of I have a personal friend of mine who would like to go into the police department. And he says, well, there's barriers that, um, he, you know, he feels that, you know, if they, if they had a different program for people like me uh, or a different pathway in, then, then I would be tr- – proved to be a great officer. Mm-hmm. And so he's kind of voiced to me that says there's, there's certain barriers to the recruitment from his perspective as wanting to be part of that. Mm. But I feel that um, we have to address the basic tenets of, of the occupational safety and the fact that they need to be affirmed and supported both uh, from a funding standpoint and just for the what I call the moral support from the community and the mayor's office that mm-hmm. they are the, the the chief you know they're the, the, the it flows down from the mayor of law enforcement that they are the ones doing the work and putting themselves on the line um, and then I also would look at in terms of the community I have what I call a sense of let's, we, we need to address the gang violence in the certain parts of the city and we need to address the homeless homelessness I'm sorry, mm-hmm. issue. And those are all tied in a way to law enforcement, but not completely. But there's an element of law enforcement in every one of those I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. So it, it just comes down to we need to have laws enforced, but we need to have – and the police having the right tools to do it. But we also need to make sure that, like I said, they have the, the, the soft skills – the, the occupational safety mechanism in place for the, the challenges that they're facing. Mm-hmm. And that all kind of wraps back to funding levels. Okay. So you mentioned support and equipment as being sort of the two main things. Do you think that's missing right now, that they're not supported and they're not being equipped like they should be? Um, I wouldn't say that. Uh, that they're not being supported, but I I'm, would say they're being faced with new challenges. Okay. And we saw that here recently where we had uh, certain events uh, in the city where people are being shot in, in basically uh, by open shooters and things like that. Mm. And we, we see more and more in the, in the news that we're dealing with shootings. Mm. And that's becoming an increasing, whether it be mass shootings or just isolated shootings, but we still need to get a handle on that. And there's just, with growth, that only increases. 
And one of the things that really I want to work for in terms of public safety in general is better coverage. Because as our city grows, the coverage of these services of police and fire get diluted. And as we grow, that's another aspect of our growth that we need to be taking into account in a more comprehensive view to make sure that we have the right kind of coverage levels that are adequate for make, you know, reducing response times mm -hmm. on fire and police, but also making sure they have the right equipment and all that goes back to funding levels. Okay. Thank you. Shelly? So you mentioned in your last response as well, um, probably the police um, responding to homeless issues, respond, you know, whatever they they get in, um, not necessarily a police issue, right? How do we address the homeless? How would you, as the next mayor, address that homeless issue we have? Okay, well, homelessness is a two-pronged issue for me. It's one, as mayor, Part of, part of my job will be to be a chief law enforcer I mean, you know, through the police. That, okay, I'm enforcing the city has laws, and these are the laws. But when it comes to this issue, we also have to have a, a redemptive path. And so there's an element of law enforcement, and there's an element of providing a redemptive path for individuals who are homeless. And so that's kind of where I'm – and I'll kind of expound upon that. For example, um, homelessness is is something that is a law enforcement issue if the person is breaking the law, sleeping or occupying private uh, private property or things, uh, and then also unsa and there's, there's unsanitary conditions which are a public health issue, and so those are all law enforcement issues in terms of dealing with the fact that I, that as mayor I have to run a city and I have to enforce enforce the existing laws occupying the medians and panhandling is against the law for Colorado Springs so that needs to be enforced but we can't just round up everybody who's breaking these laws as a homeless person and then just put them somewhere they have to have a redemptive path forward and as mayor I would envision that redemptive path being wor the city working with the community groups to find redemptive paths. Now, some of these people are willfully homeless. Some of these people are mentally uh, not well. And so that they, they're homeless for various reasons. And so on a case-by-case -case basis, we need to work with, find that redemptive path, not just law enforcement, but we have to find a redemptive path okay. for these people. Great. Thank you, sir. Uh, Christopher, if you're elected mayor, do you foresee any tax increases or fee increases? New fees, increased fees? I will, I will say that I will be a candidate who I will not do what George H.W. Bush did. <laughs> Read my lips? Yeah, I will not okay. do that. <laughs> okay, I won't get my – because I will be completely candid. As mm -hmm. an engineer, mm -hmm. I know that any project – um, that I would face as an engineer always has caveats. I would be, say, working down the road as a project manager, and then we have budgetary challenges where we're going to have to ask for more money to get something done. Mm -hmm. And as mayor, that will be no different. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it will be more on a, I would like to avoid tax increases 
if all possible. But I'm also a realist that says that there's going to be times when critical functions of the city may be needing a tax increase and need to be reviewed for a, t- a tax increase. So I, I'm not going to make a promise that I won't, won't ask for some more tax money, but I will say that I will. my guiding principle is fiscal responsibility and accountability in government. So that would be the overarching um, lens or filter through which I would look at uh, on a case-by-case basis whether or not we need to raise taxes for a particular function. Okay. Uh, running short on time, Shelley, you want to? Ask your last two there. My last two. Got you. Um, So a couple things that are league-specific, right? Uh, You'll get a a candidate forum thing for Vote 411, which is our basic questions that we ask you about your platform and whatnot and why you're running for office. But these are very league-specific. One, what are your thoughts on raising city council pay to a reasonable um, amount to be inclusive of others who do not have the ability to do that job? Um, as their only job, like a retiree. So $6,250 is what current city council members get. Um, and again, as league, as the league, we do not um, oppose or support candidates, but there are issues that we do take stances on. Um, this is one of those we've been for raising city council pay for quite a while, so curious as to what your thoughts are there. And then thoughts on moving our spring municipal elections to the fall. Probably, you know, we turn right back around in, in the fall and do school board elections, right? And so what are your thoughts on moving it to the fall to help increase voter turnout and save the city $600,000 per year? Okay, well, those are some good questions. Um, for the the first one, I have a personal friend who wanted to run for city council, and she said, I can't do it because I have a day job and I won't be able to afford to to take the time off and all that. And then she right. says, the pay is chump change. And that was just, I'm quoting her. Mm-hmm. And so I feel that the city council job as the city has grown is becoming more and more um, uh inclusive of it's more inclusive of many functions one of them is uh, being liaison to the airport or having somebody who is uh, working some certain issue and so that takes time and i think they should be paid more to answer your question in short perfect thank you because the increasing responsibilities with a growing city and then uh, the last question, um, basically, um, it all comes down to this. Um, can you repeat the question? Yes, we're moving spring elections, right? The one you're going yes. through right now, the city council uh, mayor's race, moving them from the spring to the fall to help increase voter turnout and save the city $600,000 per year. Well, as somebody who was out getting petitions in the cold weather, I would be like, yes, <laughs> right? let's do that. <laughs> Good. Uh, I know that sounds a little bit... Um, funny rationale, but uh, for the sake of saving money, I think it would be best to coordinate uh, the two. And then uh, campaigning during the warm months is so much easier, (laughs) and it's actually funner. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And so I would love to save the city some money and have uh, more time to be outside, uh, maybe out having outdoor events while I'm campaigning. Mm -hmm. Good. Good. Thank you so much. (laughs) Appreciate you. All right. Uh, Christopher, we're just about out of time. Do you want to take a couple minutes here to close us out and remind voters why they should vote for you? Yes. Uh, I am running for mayor because I am running as the non-politician politician. I'm coming from the the engineering world, um, the professional career world, if you will. 
and I have a deep love for Colorado Springs. And as we grow, I want us to grow to be not only a city of champions, but a, a, a city of the future. And I want to bring balance and I, I would say a different viewpoint to city gov- government is that I'm coming from like basically the average resident who really cares about the city and I am very competent in my uh, in my skills that I have as an engineer but to extend those to mayor some people would ask I don't see that but actually I've been a project manager and I love building teams I love uh, managing departments and I love managing money <laughs> so uh, producing a budget uh, for city council to review and we can wrangle on that budget I would love the opportunity to do that for this city Thank you, Christopher, for your time. We appreciate it. Uh, You've been watching or listening to a joint podcast effort by 6035 Media and the League of Women Voters of the Pikes Peak Region. Be sure to follow Making Democracy Work and check out lwvppr.org for more information regarding our candidate forums in March. And stick with us here at 6035 Vote to make sure your vote is an informed one. This podcast is produced by Dave Gardner. Video is directed by Nick Raven. I'm Brian Grossman, Executive Editor. And I'm Shelley Rohr, Spokesperson for the League of Women Voters of the Pikes Peak Region. See you next time. Hi, I'm Dave Gardner. And I'm Nick Raven. We're the podcast producers here at 6035 Media. 6035 Vote is just one of a growing family of hyperlocal podcasts that we're creating. And these are for you, someone who wants to engage fully in your community. We've got the 6035, which is a quick, lively recap of the top news stories of the week. It's my favorite. It's really great and often funny. I love having you as a guest, actually. I do, too. And then we have Hot Takes and Stirring Breaks, which is a potpourri of news and commentary about movies, gaming, TV, streaming, and just so much more. It's for youthful heart and... You know, that could be anyone, really. Yeah, I'm surprised I even really enjoy it because Nick hosts that, and uh, he's he's witty. Well, and the cool thing is that you can watch both of these podcasts on YouTube. Or you can listen to them on the go in your favorite podcast app. And there's a couple more, uh, but you can also visit 6035media.org slash podcast to see them, browse them, sample them. And then subscribe to the ones that you like. And then subscribe to this YouTube channel. Yeah, and if you really love it all, like we do, uh, you Which can just you can just subscribe to the 6035 Podcast Network podcast, which is a conglomeration of all the episodes, all the brilliance and humor that emanates from the studio. Absolutely, and there's a lot of it. So like and subscribe today, and go listen to them all or watch them. What he said. Good. Thanks. Got it. That wasn't so painful.